just two short verses, but powerful this morning. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's possession, to the praise of His glory. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for caring for worthless things like us. Thank you for the assurance that you give, which is amazing because it's anchored in you and you don't change and your promises you always keep. Thank you so much for what you gave and did for us and help us this morning to understand by the power of the Spirit what you've done. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Good morning. This passage and this message are, are uh, very dear to my heart, and I pray that uh, I pray that God will use this uh, to, uh, to encourage you, because this is one of the very most encouraging truths that I know. Um, let me uh, first catch us up on kind of where we where we've been, where we are. I did a "You Are Here" there. Uh, we started this series on the Holy Spirit considering the relationship that always was. Uh, relationship of perfect love and fellowship and communion between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that has existed from eternity past. When God brings us to faith in Jesus Christ, He draws us into that everlasting relationship in Christ. We, we get to step into this magnificent fellowship and communion and love that has always existed. Then we consider the Holy Spirit's role in creation and in recreation. We saw that the third person of the Trinity is powerfully involved not only in the creation of all things, but in the regeneration that turns the hearts of fallen men back to God. He is the one who enters into us and changes us. And we'll talk more about that this morning. In the third message, uh, the Spirit's sword and scalpel, we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing God to man through the proclaimed and written word and at his work to illumine and to explain that same word to us whom he has redeemed. In the, the last two messages, we examine the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the miraculous conception, birth, and earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ during His first advent. And that brings us to this morning's and next Sunday's messages, which have to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in us, in, in the child of God. Now, we've already got a little bit of a head start on that because we talked about the Spirit's role in revealing God through the Word and illuminating that Word in our hearts. And of course, we talked about His work in giving us new life, regenerating us. But now we're going to focus on what He does in addition to that work through the Word, what He does daily, day by day in our lives. Next week, we're going to really dig into that. Before we get to the details of, of that, there's something very foundational that I want to make sure that we are all tracking 
this morning. And that is uh, the work of the Spirit as He indwells, seals, secures, and assures the child of God. Indwells, seals, secures, and assures. And some might look at that title and say, why didn't I, why didn't I put baptizes up there too? Well, the, the simple answer to that is that the Holy Spirit is not the person of the Trinity who does the baptizing. Jesus is. He baptizes in and with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't want to draw too sharp a distinction there because in every activity of each of the persons of the Trinity, the others are always there. They're always involved. But the, the Bible, the New Testament does speak of baptism as the work of Jesus in the life and heart of the, of the believer. Uh, every believer has been baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, the resurrected Jesus was talking to His disciples just before He ascended back to the right hand of His Father. And He said, For John the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's clearly pointing to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon His disciples that would happen on the day of Pentecost. We find recorded in Acts chapter 2. Now I should point out here that the ceremony of baptism that we as Christians observe, like when we, when we pull up the screen and dunk somebody in the, in the big tub back there, uh, it's not the same thing as the baptism of John the Baptist. In Matthew 3 verse 11, John the Baptist said, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I and I am not fit to remove his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The baptism that we observe is a symbol that points to that baptism that Jesus performs. John's baptism was a special provision of God for a very special time in human history. John's commission from God was to herald or to announce the coming of the long-promised Messiah King and Savior of sinners, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. John's was a baptism of repentance by which sinners in need of forgiveness and cleansing publicly acknowledged that desperate need and began then to wait expectantly for the coming of the long-promised Messiah King and Savior, whose kingdom was indeed at hand because the king of that kingdom, the one who would accomplish that forgiveness and cleansing, was just about to begin his ministry. Like John's baptism, the ceremony of believers' baptism is done in water by full immersion. But the purpose of the ceremony that we observe is not to prepare a sinful heart to receive the promised Savior. And it certainly does not accomplish the believer's salvation. Instead, that ceremony declares, it doesn't prepare, it declares, it publicly proclaims that the person being baptized in water has already come to faith in Jesus Christ and has already been baptized by Christ into Christ with the Holy Spirit. Now, which believers 
have had that true baptism, that baptism by Jesus in and with the Holy Spirit, and which, which have not? Well, God's answer is all have and none have not. All believers have been baptized by Christ in and with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The, the baptism by Christ in the Holy Spirit is not something reserved for, for some, some high echelon of believers. It is for everyone who comes to Christ. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So if you've come to faith in Christ, according to that passage, you have been baptized into Christ and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now that gives us some hint, but let's, let's uh, consider the question, what is the effect of that true baptism that Jesus does? What happens when Christ baptizes someone with the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is a whole lot more than we're going to be able to talk about in one message. <laughs> but I want to ponder at least some of what happens in that true baptism of every believer. Notice first that the two passages we just read, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Galatians 3, 26 and 27, uh, there are, they tell us that there are two things that we are baptized into. We are baptized into Christ and we are baptized into one body. Baptism with the Holy Spirit binds us together with Christ in eternal union and binds us together with one another in eternal union forever. It's unbreakable. We are now identified with Christ and with His people. We no longer have an identity that is separate from our union with Christ and from our union with His people. There is no longer a Tom Wright who exists apart from union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God for that. Good riddance. The second thing that happens when Christ baptizes us with the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit Himself comes to reside in each believer from then on and without interruption. Every believer has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is such a magnificent truth. When God brings a person to faith in Jesus, Jesus baptizes that person with the Holy Spirit. From that point forward, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in that believer. The baptism and the indwelling are not two events. They are one event. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit was actually promised long before Christ came and made it happen. That promise was part of the new covenant promises originally pro proclaimed by God through Old Testament prophets. In Ezekiel chapter 36, immediately after God indicts Israel and Judah for profaning His name in the nations where He sent them in exile as judgment, God make, 
made this new covenant promise to them. So first he indicts them and he says, you're unworthy. I should judge you. I should destroy you. And then he says, here's what I'm going to do to vindicate my holy name. He says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. What spirit? He's about to tell us. He says, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will put my spirit, God says, within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. Now that is a magnificent promise. God told the Israelites that a day was coming when he would give them a new heart and a new spirit, and that new spirit would be his spirit dwelling within them. That's an Old Testament promise. That marvelous promise, I believe, will find its fulfillment toward Israel in the, in the last days. I, personally, I believe that, uh, that there will be a, a mighty revival among the Jews in the last days. But it has already found its fulfillment in us. That promise has been fulfilled through the Holy Spirit's indwelling of every New Testament believer. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20, Paul says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul addresses that forceful exhortation to every believer. All who trust in Jesus are indwelled by the Holy Spirit from the moment that they first believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit makes us God-bearers on earth, individually and together as the church. And because God is three in one and not three in three, it shouldn't surprise us that when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, the Father and the Son also take up residence within us. In John chapter 14, just before he was arrested, and taken away to be crucified the next day, Jesus said to his disciples, starting at 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a paraclete, an advocate, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He will be in you. And then Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a while, a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. 
in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And just a few verses later, he says, he says to those who love him and keep his commandments, he says, I and my Father will make our abode with you. The triune God dwells in you if you believe in Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. All right, so every believer has been baptized in and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And every believer has been sealed and thus secured with the Holy Spirit. This is where I'm going to camp out the rest of, this, of our time this morning is on this. Every believer has been sealed and thus forever secured with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Remember the words sealed and pledge. Paul expands that same promise in the verses that Jonathan read right at the beginning, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When I was a, when I was a, a new Christian, a young man and a, and a baby Christian, uh, the, my high school biology teacher who introduced me to Christ also pointed out those two verses to me. And it, I, I don't know how to put it, it just changed everything for me. And, and some people think that I'm nuts, but, but since that day, when I was 16 years old, I have never doubted my salvation. People say, well, that's, that's wrong because, you know, you haven't lived a perfect life. And my answer is, the reason I haven't doubted my salvation is because I didn't have anything to do with it. Now, bear with me. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Christ, you also, and Paul's talking to Gentiles, and he's saying, not just the Jews, who believe in Christ, but you Gentiles who believe in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Man. According to those two verses, there are three things that happened the day that you came to faith in Jesus. God made all three happen, but you got to participate in the first two. You had no part in the third thing except as the beneficiary. First, you heard the message of truth, the good news of your salvation. Second, you believed that life-giving message and God imputed the righteousness of Christ to you on the basis of that faith that He gave you. And finally, God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and in the, in the verse, it says you were sealed. That's passive. It means God did it. You just sat there. Right? You didn't seal yourself. God sealed you. The word sealed in both of those passages is a fascinating word when it comes to the biblical precursors to its usage here. In other words, how it was used before this. And there, there are some, there's more than one passage, but there's one in particular that I want to draw your attention to. 
The word sealed as it's used here is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in in the book of Esther in chapter 8 when it's talking about the royal signet ring of the king. Now, kings in the ancient Near East wore a ring and the ring had had a, a unique seal or symbol that represented their authority and only theirs. Okay. When a document was created, a decree from the king, the way that that document was certified as authoritative, as bearing the king's authority, is they would put a wax, drops of wax on, on the document and then the king would take his ring and he would impress it into the wax. And that would mark that document as with his authority. Okay. Now, in Esther chapter 8, the Persian king Ahasuerus put the royal signet, put his royal signet ring on the hand of a Jew named Mordecai. And there's a lot of backstory here, but he took the ring, he put it on the hand of a, a Jew named Mordecai so that Mordecai, with the full authority of the king, could send out a decree granting the Jews the right to defend themselves against certain Persians who were seeking their destruction as a people who wanted to destroy the Israelites. When he handed Mordecai his signet ring, the king said to him, now you, Mordecai, write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked may not be revoked. Mordecai, verse 10, wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, he sealed it with the king's signet ring, and he sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. Each of the letters that Mordecai thus sent out with those messengers was marked and protected by the king's seal. And everyone in the Persian kingdom knew that a decree which had thus been sealed may not be changed or revoked. Each of those letters would have been placed in a royal pouch that was also sealed with wax, likewise impressed with the seal made by the king's signet ring. The purpose of the seal was threefold. First, it established the authority of the decree, of the letter. That it bore the authority of the king. Secondly, it guaranteed the transportation of the letter from its source to its destination. If you live in a nation like Persia at that time and you know what kings do when you mess with them, you're not going to touch that pouch. And you're going to be very careful not to disturb that seal. Because if you do, you die. So nobody messed with the pouch. And third, most importantly, the king's seal rendered the, the, the authoritative decree in the letter irrevocable, unchangeable. Beloved, the seal that Jesus, the King of Kings, places immediately on every man, woman, and child who trusts in Him, that seal is the indwelling Holy Spirit. That seal cannot be broken. The Holy Spirit will not move. He will not leave those whom He has indwelled. You have God's guarantee of that. 
Ephesians 1.14 says the seal of the indwelling Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance. The word pledge means down payment. Sort of like the down payment you might make on a car or house. <laughs> it is the first part given as guarantee that the rest of the payment will follow, right? Now the huge difference between a down payment that you or I might make on a house or a car and the down payment that God has given to everyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ is that you might, you might renege on your, on your contract and lose your down payment. God's not going to lose His down payment. And He's not going to renege on his, on his promise. See, it's not a transaction. It's not a contract. It's a gift. And God says, has my seal. The seal of Almighty God. And nothing and nobody is going to break that seal. This pledge, God's gift to every believer of the indwelling Holy Spirit is the first part of our eternal inheritance that God has already secured for us. It's laid up in heaven. It's waiting for us in His presence. In fact, He's going to bring it here. <laughs> Beloved, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then the God who cannot lie has already given you the first part the down payment and guarantee of your everlasting inheritance. And He intends for you to have rock-solid certainty that the rest of that inheritance is going to follow. Rock-solid certainty. All of you know Christians who don't have that certainty. Some of you are Christians who don't have that certainty. Honestly, guys, there's nothing I can think of that I more zealously desire for you to know as a Christian than that your eternal destiny is already settled. Because without that knowledge, the very foundation of your holiness has been taken away. The greatest of all down payments ever made is a person, the third person of the Trinity, indwelling every believer. The rest of our inheritance that will soon follow that down payment is just as in person. It's just as personal. It's just as relational. The rest of our inheritance is eternal relationship, fellowship, and communion with our triune God together with each other, together with all the redeemed of God in the place that He has lovingly prepared for us to dwell with Him. We have already been given the in-person down payment of our in-person inheritance. What makes heaven heaven, beloved, is God. It is the presence of God. The triune God. Together with His people. Every believer is sealed and secured by the Holy Spirit and every believer is assured by the Holy Spirit. Problem is, sometimes we're not listening. Romans 8, verses 14 to 17 says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Both those things are going to happen, by the way. If you belong to Christ, you will suffer with Him until you breathe your last breath. How long, by the way, how long did, I've asked this before, but how long did Jesus have to suffer and set aside His glory before He got to, to claim His glory back? 33 years until He breathed His last breath on the cross. A little bit, little bit longer because He hung around for 40 days and and then he, then he ascended back to the glory of his father, right? The right hand of his father. So, okay, if the slave is not better than the master, not greater than the master, how long do you think we're going to have to wait until we get to enter into our glory, until the suffering ends and we get to enter into our glory? Last breath. After the last breath. If we, if we buy into that, guys, we're going to have a very different interpretation of a whole lot of things that happen to us in our lives. You're going to recognize this is the plan. This is the way it's supposed to work. And it's good. It's not bad. It's not ungracious. <laughs> Peter, 1 Peter 4, Peter says, if, to the extent that you share in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The promise here is that the spirit himself bears witness. He testifies to us that we are children of God. How does he do that? Michael Horton says the Spirit witnesses within us subjectively, but he appeals to the external word. That's very important. The Spirit bears witness to us in our hearts, but the content of that witness is the Word of God. The content of the Spirit's witness that you belong to Christ is the promise of God found in His Word. It's not, the, the, the content isn't something that you have to go get. It's not something that's mysterious. It's not something that's, that's, you know, hard to find. It's right there in the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit takes that just like He does everything else in the Word of God. He takes that and He burns it into our hearts. The same phrase, the same phrase, the Holy Spirit bears witness is, is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 to 18. And I don't think it's accidental that the content of the Spirit's witness in that passage is all about the promise of the Spirit's presence in every believer. Listen to how the Spirit testifies to us of this marvelous truth. Hebrews 10, 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Does anybody know where that citation comes from? You got it, brother. Jeremiah 31. New covenant in the Old Testament. So how does the Spirit bear witness to us who belong to Christ that God has given us a spiritual heart transplant. He's replaced our minds with the mind of Christ. How does he, he tell us, how does He affirm to us that He's made us His own? By quoting Himself. That's how He does it. By quoting Himself. 
by pointing to His promise to His people in His Word. You with me? I'm not saying there's nothing more to the Holy Spirit's witness to our identity as children of God than to point us to the promises written in the Bible. I'm saying that reminding us of those promises is indispensable to how the Holy Spirit bears that witness. The mystery part is how he, is that He convinces us. Right? We can look at that content all day long and not be convinced. But the Holy Spirit... He pierces our heart. He lays us bare through the Word. And He says, this is what's true. Our problem, guys, is that a lot of times we're not listening. In fact, <laughs> it's been my experience ever since I was a young believer that this promise eludes so many Christians because it's like we're, we're scanning through the Bible looking, under, looking behind and under every word trying to find some reason not to be sure of our salvation. Fundamentally, I think that, that goes back to the fact that we, we are just, we are so bent on insinuating ourselves into our salvation somehow. We are so bent on finding something we can point to that we did. And so we turn our eyes to ourselves. And what we end up doing is ripping stuff out of context and denying the promise that's right there in front of us. And I can, if, you, if you have a passage that you think contradicts what I'm saying, come talk to me. Please. Because I've been, I've been in the Word for 48 years. That, that in itself, there are people here who know the Word considerably better than I do. But let me say this, guys. I've not found one single passage that contradicts this promise. And, I, and what I find over and over and over is that the Bible just keeps declaring this and fortifying it. Beloved, if you agree with God that you're a sinner who deserves only His condemnation, if you've turned your face away from whatever was keeping you from trusting in Jesus, and you've trusted with, in Him with humble, childlike faith, if you're counting only on His perfect obedience and His atoning sacrifice of Himself in your place as the only merit you will ever have in the eyes of God, then I have good news for you. God intends for you to know whose you are and where you're headed. He intends for you to know, not to guess. If you're still guessing, keep listening, please. You and I need to know this. I pray with all my heart that everyone here who believes in Jesus will know this and count it as true every day that remains to you on earth because this is the bedrock of holiness. It is on the ground and basis of the sure and certain promise of God that God produces unassailable gratitude in our hearts. And that gratitude is the wellspring of godly living. In Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Him, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with Gratitude. That's how we walk with that's how we walk in Christ. How? The same way we started. By faith, overflowing with gratitude. We count the promises of God in Christ to be true, and through that right accounting, the Holy Spirit fills us 
with gratitude toward, toward God that overflows. It overflows. You can't hold it back. But beloved, you will never be grateful for something that you're not sure you have. Let me say that again. You will never be grateful for something you're not sure that you have. Doubt does not produce gratitude. Certainty produces gratitude. God intends you to know that the gift is yours. He already gave you the down payment if you believe in Jesus. Paul says that when God sealed you with His Holy Spirit, He did so with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You know what that means? It means that on the day that God brought you to faith in Jesus, when He put His Holy Spirit in you as the first part of your inheritance of Him, He, God, had in mind the day when He will lay hold of you as His inheritance that He purchased with His Son's precious blood. Is there anybody here who thinks that God won't get what He paid for? John 6, verses 37 to 40 says, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And then listen, He says, This is the will of Him who sent me that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And then he rephrases. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Does that sound like you're supposed to know what your destiny is? Jesus says, you're supposed to know. John 10, verses 27 to 30, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When God brought you to faith in Jesus, He did something that nothing and nobody can ever undo. He put His seal upon you by putting His Spirit within you. And He declares that that seal cannot be broken. His promise to you cannot be changed. His gift to you cannot be undone. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from what I consider to be the greatest chapter on the believer's assurance that I've ever encountered outside of Scripture itself. It was written in 1873 by a Scottish preacher named Horatius Bonner in a book called The Everlasting Righteousness. It's from chapter 9, which is called The Pardon and the Peace Made Sure. If I could get every one of you to read that 15-page chapter and to test it against the clear and repeated and emphatic proclamations of God's Word from which it is derived, I would be ecstatic. It's public domain. You can download it as a PDF, the whole book. Go to chapter 9. It's called The Everlasting Righteousness. Horatius Bonner. Last name is spelled B-O-N-A-R. It's the Scottish pronunciation. And I'm going to give you just a sample. And I, and I want you to bear with me here. It's a, a little bit of an of a extended quote. 
Bonner says, God has given us this gospel not merely for the purpose of securing to us life hereafter, but of making us sure of this life even now. It is a true and sure gospel so that he who believes it is made sure of being saved. And then he says, what a poor gospel it must be which leaves the man who believes it still in doubt as to whether he is a child of God, an unpardoned or a pardoned sinner. Till we have found forgiveness, we cannot serve God gladly or lovingly. He says, this is the view of the matter which the Scriptures set before us, telling us that salvation is a free, a sure, a present gift. He that believeth is justified, Acts 13.39. He that believeth hath, that means has right now, everlasting life, John 3.36. The Bible gives no quarter to unbelief or to doubting. It does not call it humility. It does not teach us to think better of ourselves for doubting. It does not countenance uncertainty or darkness. This was the view taken on the subject by our fathers from the Reformation downward. They held that a man ought to know that he is justified. And that it was popery to teach uncertainty. That means he's saying that is the product of the Roman Catholic Church to teach uncertainty. If you read, you read the whole of that chapter, you'll find that what he's saying is that the Roman Catholic Church stole certainty from the believer and then started selling it back to individuals, including for money. And he says there are Protestants doing the same thing. He said they held, the reformers held that a man ought to know that he's justified, that it was popery to teach uncertainty or to set aside the full assurance of faith or to hold that this sureness was not to be had from the beginning of a man's conversion, but only to be gathered up in process of years by summing up his good feelings and good deeds and concluding from his own excellences that he must be one of the elect, a man in favor with God. Our fathers believed that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, Romans 5.1. And that the life of a believing man is a life of known pardon. A life of peace with God. A life of which the outset was the settlement of the great question between himself and God. This conscious justification started the man upon a happy life because springing so sweetly from the certainty of his reconciliation to God, it delivered him from the cruel suspense and undefined fears which the want of assurance carries always with it. It rescued him from all temptations to self-righteousness because it did not arise from any good thing in himself. It preserved him from pride and presumption because it kept him from trying to magnify his own goodness in order to extract assurance out of that goodness. It drew him away from self to Christ from what he was doing to what Christ had done, thus making Christ not self the basis and the center of his new being. It made him more and more dissatisfied with self and all that self-contained, but more and more satisfied with Jesus and his fullness. It taught him to rest his confidence toward God, not on his satisfaction with self, not on the development of his own holiness, not on the amount of his graces and prayers and doings, but simply on the completed work of him 
in whom God was well pleased. End of quote. Bonner's words express my heart on this vitally important matter better than any words I've ever come up with. And, I've, and when, I, when I discovered his writings, it's like, yeah, that's it. I believe as Bonner did and as Luther did and as Calvin did that the good works that the Holy Spirit produces in us fortify our assurance. But beloved, the good works that God faithfully does produce in us as His children can never be the ground and basis of that assurance. Calvin says works are God's gift and cannot become the foundation of self-confidence for believers. And Calvin says this about the efficient cause of our salvation. He says, whenever the true cause is to be assigned, God does not enjoin us to take refuge in works, but keeps us solely to the contemplation of His, of his mercy. Friends, the only right and reliable ground of our assurance is the same as the ground of our faith. The perfection of the person, completed work, and magnificent promises of Christ Jesus our Lord. The one who indwells you testifies continually through his word of that person, that work, and that promise. Far too many believers agonize over whether their faith is somehow sufficient to give them certainty of their standing with God. Calvin rightly observed that, quote, faith of itself does not possess the power of justifying, but only insofar as it receives Christ. We compare faith, he says, to a kind of vessel, like a big bowl. For unless we come empty, and with the mouth of our soul open to seek Christ's grace, we are not capable of receiving Christ. He's saying faith's just the bowl that holds Christ. Christ is the certainty. Our faith does not find its resting place, beloved, in the quality or quantity of our faith. We don't put our faith in our faith. We put our faith in Jesus. Our faith is, it rests in the perfection of faith's object, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. If your eyes are turned toward you, you will find no sufficient basis for assurance of your position as a redeemed child of God. That assurance only comes when your eyes are fixed on the author and perfecter of faith, our great God and Savior, Jesus. I got a couple of more paragraphs, and then I'll let you go. There are three fundamental reasons that people who believe in a personal creator God strive to do things that please God. One is to avoid getting something bad from Him. Another is to get something good from Him, or perhaps to prove that they've got it. Yet another is because they know that He has already graciously given them the opposite of what they deserve. The Christian life is all about that third motivation for godliness. That's the one that actually sticks. Beloved, gratitude is a whole lot more durable than doubt. It is a whole lot more productive than doubt. And is a whole lot more enjoyable. Amen. God wants us to delight in Him. To delight in Him. Doing the things that please God because God has given us the exact opposite of what we deserved 
produces grateful, joyful, delighted obedience. I can tell you guys, there are besetting sins that by the grace of God have been put behind me. There's some I'm still, still wrestling with. But, but there's only one thing that has made those changes in my life. And it is, not, it is not method. It is not guilt. It's not seven steps. It is gratitude toward God. The God who I, who I love to please because of what He has given to me in Jesus Christ. That sticks. Ephesians 4, verse 30, Paul gives us this simple exhortation. Listen to this. It's just magnificent. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's the Christian motivation in a nutshell right there. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Please the Holy Spirit. Delight the Holy Spirit. Why? Because He sealed you for the day of redemption. It's already settled. It's already settled. The Bible's constant appeal for godliness in the people of God is grounded, rooted, anchored in gratitude for the unfathomable riches that God has lavished upon us in Christ. And Paul tells us, last thing here, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that God has done all of this to the praise of His glory. Verse 6 of that same chapter says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. <laughs> God glorifies Himself by being gracious. He puts His character on display for everyone to behold through the grace that He has lavished upon you and me. God's amazing grace, He wants you to know it. He wants you to cling to it. He wants you to be absolutely certain that you who trust in Christ have received it and that you are signed, sealed, and soon to be delivered into His courts above. Loving Father, You have given everyone who trusts in You Your in-person seal of the indwelling Holy Spirit as your, as your down payment to us of the rest of the inheritance of You. We are heirs of God together with all the saints. This indescribable gift is to the praise of the glory of Your magnificent grace. So we praise You and we thank You with hearts full of gratitude. And we look to Your indwelling Spirit to turn that gratitude into useful service to spread Your kingdom over all the earth. We pray these things in the name and for the sake of our Savior, our Master, our great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.